Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Fund, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, controversy erupts over the possible naming of a barrier island off of Florida's east-central coast. Well, initially I wasn't present at the meeting when they voted to back the naming of it as Ponce de Leon Island. And so I was kind of surprised. The Lincoln Theater served African Americans in Fort Pierce until the 1960s and is now being preserved. I remember on Saturdays, if we completed our chores early enough, we could always go to the movies. That was a big, big thing. We would meet all of our friends. We'll look at the change in Florida politics from our being a reliable blue state to a predominantly red state. That and more ahead on Florida Frontiers. I have heard of an island Young lovers often go. They say it's wonderful. So my wanna go, go, go. I wanna go, go, go. Because I've read about it, heard about it, talk so very much about it. That's where we. There was not much love in the room as the Brevard County Commission revisited their 5-to-1 vote of support to give the name Ponce de Leon Island to a currently unnamed portion of a barrier island off of Florida's east-central coast. Individuals and representatives of Native American organizations called Juan Ponce de Leon and his crew rapists and murderers, while other individuals and representatives of Hispanic groups called these claims unfounded and based in racism. By the end of the evening, the Brevard County Commission voted 3-2 to two to rescind their support of naming the island in recognition of Juan Ponce de Leon, who may have landed near there when he gave our state its name in 1513. Michael Boonstra is genealogy librarian and archivist for the Brevard County Historical Commission and describes the land in question. It's the part of the barrier island that goes from Port Canaveral to Sebastian Inlet. And so it was actually pointed out at the last uh, one of our last historical commission meetings that, you know, it one of the uh, gentlemen brought up that it wasn't really an island uh, until it was created that way because it was used to be attached at the top with Port Canaveral. So it was just the finger peninsula coming down as the Bear Islands tend to do. So it's more the man-made created uh, island from Port where Port Canaveral goes through down to Sebastian then. And it is currently unnamed on on maps it just is referred to as the barrier island and obviously there's cities on that barrier island but there's no particular name given to that 2013 marks the 500th anniversary of the naming of our state by juan Ponce de leon an historic marker approved by the state is planted near the barrier island on melbourne beach the marker identifies the area as a possible landing site for Ponce when he came ashore for the first time 500 years ago when the idea of naming the island after Ponce de Leon first emerged, it was greeted with much support. 
Michael Boonstra. Well, it was in uh, early 2011 when the idea started to come about. And there were um, several groups that were involved in that. And uh, with our naming of our Ponce de Leon Park that, that's down there in South Brevard and our landmark that we have, uh, one of the state landmark signs that's been placed there as well. And so uh, that uh, different groups got together with that and uh, put forth the naming. And as you said, it was progressing there. Then what they did was they went to the cities as well to garner further support, um, the different municipalities on that barrier island, and then also ones that are are on the mainland in uh, getting motions and going to their city councils and getting support for that. Uh, in line with the idea that they would do an application um, for the United States Geographic Board on Geographic Names to name that island. And part of that process would be to get public input in those areas to, um, to go along with that application in support of that application. The proposal to name the island in honor of Ponce de Leon did get overwhelming support from local municipalities, the Brevard County Historical Commission, and in turn the Brevard County Commission. As word spread, though, opposition to the idea erupted forcefully. In a letter to the U.S. Geological Survey dated October 14, 2011, Melbourne Beach resident Patricia Paisley stated that Juan Ponce de Leon was someone who had no qualms about savagely killing, torturing, and enslaving the Indians he encountered. On August 21, 2011, the American Indian Association sent a letter to the Brevard County Commission opposing the Ponce name, saying that would be seen by indigenous people around the world as the equivalent of honoring a mass murderer. Both letters supported the idea of naming the island after the extinct Ais Indians, the original inhabitants of the area. In light of these objections and others, the national organization responsible for approving geographical name changes asked local entities to reconsider both proposals. So what's happened now is, the since that wasn't really an option in the beginning, we uh, the commission, the county commission, the historical commissions, were just basically presented with this proposition to, to name the Bear Island for Ponce de Leon. And then uh, when it went for a second look, and these named the, uh, the complaints and, and, and suggestions also went to, the, to um, the Board on Geographic Names, and they asked the cities that had already decided in the commission to look at it again and say, now that there is a second option, which there was not in the first place, now that there's been an additional option presented, do you wish to look at this again and based on your public opinion and... Um, and light of research, et cetera, you know, are you st staying with the original intent or is there, you know, any, anybody that's changing their mind? Four municipalities that had originally approved the Ponce de Leon name for the island rescinded their endorsements. Two took no action, with Melbourne and Melbourne Beach voting in favor of the name. The Brevard County Historical Commission also revisited the issue. Michael Boonstra. What they voted was that they believe there's validity to both names which I think a lot of people see, and that tends to be what I'm seeing with public and, and other people that are talking, is that it seems that both sides almost have equal supporters. And I think people can see uh, the validity in both names, that both names have historical precedents. And that was what the motion that was adopted by the Historical Commission, that both names have historical pre precedents, and that they recommend to the Brevard County Board of County Commissioners that they not recommend a name at this time until broad community consensus has been obtained. 
So whether more cities take votes, whether there's been people batting it around where it should maybe be on the ballot in November, they'd like to see it as a referendum for people that live on the Barrier Island to decide that and then go from there. Rachel Wenz is director of the Florida Public Archaeology Network East Central Region and serves on the Brevard County Historical Commission. She supports naming the island after the area's original inhabitants, the Ais. Well, initially I wasn't present at the meeting when they voted to back the naming of it as Ponce de Leon Island. And so I was kind of surprised when I found out that that had passed, that the commission, the Brevard Historic Commission, was backing that. Because as an archaeologist, I think to have one of these unnamed islands, if you're going to name it, that it's even more appropriate to name it uh, after the original inhabitants who are here. And we know the Ais were in this region. Um, Whether they lived directly on the island, I don't know what the archaeological evidence is in that exact area, but we know that they lived here in the region. They were a contact period group, and that Ponce de Leon probably met them when he came ashore. So as I put forth in the meeting, it would be the same as if we pushed on the Spanish hey, let's name one of your barrier islands after one of our personnel who got there, you know, thousands of years later after your original inhabitants had already existed there for a long time. One of the strongest arguments in favor of the Ais Island name is that it actually appears on early Spanish maps of the area. Michael Boonstra and Rachel Wentz. When um, the objector started doing research, too, as far as a name goes, to try to determine, um, you know, what was a valid name, and they started actually looking at some of the Spanish maps and some of the original documents, and that may have been what spurred the the other naming, too, because there was quite a few instances where the barrier island in this area was referred to as the, you know, the Lagoon of the Ice or the Island of the Ice or, or you know, several was on several... Several maps for for several hundreds of years that that was the people that were here and there was a name so that started coming out well if we're going to name something this is a name that's been used in the past has been referred to this you know how come we're not looking at at this issue as well there were several representatives of the Native American community there at the meeting and they presented several I mean at least five different ancient Spanish maps that show it as Ais Island um, for hundreds of years so if this unnamed island is going to take on a name suddenly to me that would be most appropriate to go back to the historical accounts of what it was originally and to recognize the native inhabitants of Florida. Samuel Lopez is chairman of the Royal Order of the Juan Ponce de Leon Historical Celebration Committee and serves on the Brevard County Historical Commission. Lopez says that Ponce de Leon was a brave explorer who brought Christianity to the New World, and he takes the attacks on Ponce personally. 2013, um, besides the fact of what it can do for our county as far as tourism, um, which is a wonderful piece, um, the, um, the understanding of, of, of coming together and building, and building a relationship um, with, with the Spanish government and trade um, for the people also in Puerto Rico because everything was assembled in Puerto Rico. The ships, the people basically, everybody was, everybody got ready and they all left from Puerto Rico. So for us, and we're American citizens, we're part of this nation. When I hear all this stuff and I see all the stuff about Juan Ponce de Leon being a mass murderer, raping women and children here in Brevard, uh, you know, I, I took that I took that so personal because I'm an American of 
Puerto Rican and Jewish descent. And I took it so personal because no one took a gun and put it on my head to accept Christianity. And I did that out of my own free will. A whole bunch of other people that we know have done the same. Uh, no one came to them and said, you know, you have to worship, you have to do this. And so my driving part in all of this is because of what my belief is. Previously on this program, we have discussed Douglas Peck's conclusion that Ponce de Leon landed near Melbourne Beach in 1513. Peck's research is the basis for the historic marker there. Lopez strongly endorses Peck's conclusions and plans to build a cultural research center on the site. Lopez believes that the naming of the barrier island should be an inclusive process not tainted by racism and that the 500th anniversary of Ponce's landing should also include all people. The, the plans are basically is to, is to have a celebration of inclusion and that is so important. Inclusion to, so that everyone could, could learn about Douglas Peck's findings. His findings are very, very important because it has turned the tide um, and, and, has, and has opened the door for further research. And what we can find now with, 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 with the younger generation going in and starting to um, understand and start digging into history, um, so many other things are going to be uncovered. Um, that's going to shed a light on the early beginnings of this nation. With official support of the Ponce de Leon name dwindling and no official support for the Ais Island name forthcoming, the likely outcome is that the barrier island will remain nameless. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Whatever your opinion is of Juan Ponce de Leon, his impact on Florida and the world is undeniable. When Ponce landed here in 1513, he named our state La Florida. 
In 2013, the Florida Historical Society will be hosting a very special annual meeting and symposium aboard the Carnival cruise ship Sensation leaving out of Port Canaveral on May 23rd. The theme of the conference is 500 Years of La Florida Sailing in the Path of Discovery. Presenters will include renowned contact-era scholars such as Dr. Gerald Milanich, Dr. Kathleen Deegan, Dr. Jose Fernandez, and many others. Cabins are filling up fast, so register now. Go to myfloridahistory.org for more information and to register. That's myfloridahistory.org. In 1513, Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon landed on Florida's shore, beginning a cultural relationship between Spain and Florida that will be commemorated throughout the state on its 500th anniversary in 2013. This moment in Florida history features Dana St. Clair, Director of Heritage Tourism and Historic Preservation for the city of St. Augustine. The American Revolutionary War, which took place when the British occupied St. Augustine from 1763 to 1783, is perhaps one of the most interesting periods in St. Augustine's history. Our big claim to fame in St. Augustine is that we had three signers of the Declaration of Independence, all from South Carolina, under house arrest. We also burned effigies of John Hancock and Sam Adams in the plaza, and the Loyalists also harassed patriots that were imprisoned in the fort. The three signers from South Carolina, Edward Rutledge, Arthur Middleton, and Thomas Hayward Jr., after they were captured, weren't actually imprisoned in the fort. They were allowed to roam around town, but surely were harassed by King George III's Loyalists. Dana St. Clair is Director of Heritage Tourism and Historic Preservation for the City of St. Augustine. This moment in Florida history was created and produced by the Florida Humanities Council with funds from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, commemorating 500 years of Spanish history and culture in Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. The Lincoln Theater in Fort Pierce served the African-American community when the Sunrise Theater was segregated. As Janie Gould reports, the theater is now being preserved. The 500-seat Lincoln Theater on Avenue D once stood as a centerpiece of northwest Fort Pierce. The African-American physician Dr. Clem Benton and a white pharmacist, Harry Center, built the movie house in 1946, when seating was segregated at the Sunrise Theater across town. The Lincoln Theater closed in the late 1960s. It still sits empty, but now Benton's daughter, attorney Margaret Benton, Reg Floyd, program director of St. Lucie County's Upward Bound program at Indian River State College, and others are working to restore it. Benton and Floyd spent many Saturdays at the Lincoln Theater. We would see the old cowboy movies, and there was always another movie. We had popcorn, and because there's a concession stand right there, which was a part of a drugstore that people could enter from the exterior, but we could go to the concession stand and access it from the inside. I remember on Saturdays, if we completed our chores early enough, we could always go to the movies. That was a big, big thing. We would meet all of our friends. The Avenue D Quarter at that time was the major business center of the community. We are on the west side of the old theater building right now, and it's a vacant lot. Were there businesses here at that time? Yes, there were businesses all along. Where you see vacant lots today, we had all kinds of shops. Behind us, there was a shoe shop called Warwick Shoe Shop. I now wished 
that he were here because it's very difficult to find a shoe repairman. There were all kinds of shops along the avenue, a number of restaurants, clothing shops. There's a dry cleaners right down the street on 11th Street. And then another pickup dry cleaning place at 10th Street, hat shops, things of that sort. So really everything you needed was right here, is that right? That's correct. Was going to the movies, going to the Lincoln Theater, something that kids did pretty much every week? Absolutely, every Saturday we would go. And there would be a different feature, of course, double feature as well. And there would be cereals, and there would be new cereals. I lived down the street, just over on 11th Street. So you could walk here? And I did walk here. I had a grandmother who loved movies, so every time the features changed, which was every two or three days, I would come with her. In its heyday, the Lincoln Theater served as a hurricane shelter and had live entertainment and school events. I do remember when I graduated from high school, they had an after-prom event here. We came here to see a movie. Because of the reputation of the theater, the parents viewed this venue as a safe place. All the movies and the entertainment were family-oriented. This can again be an anchor for economic development. This theater, while it's a community theater, it's a regional theater. It fits right into the groupings of theaters that we already have in St. Lucie County. It'll just be so wonderful to see the theater revitalized, but the important thing is that it's going to be so much a support for the economic environment in our area. I have such a feeling of deep pride in this project. I think a message needs to go out to young people today that there are people who came before them, people like Dr. Benton, who really saw a need here in St. Lucie County to establish venues such as this theater to draw the community together. Reg Floyd and Margaret Benton are members of the Martin Luther King Jr. Commemorative Committee, which purchased the theater building and received a grant from the Fort Pierce Redevelopment Agency to begin restoration. I'm Janie Gould. This is Florida Frontiers. I feel so bad I've got a worried mind I'm so lonesome all the time Since I left my baby behind on Blue Bayou Saving nickels, saving dimes Working till the sun don't shine Looking forward to happier times on Blue Bayou I'm going back someday, come what may, to Blue Bayou Will you sleep all day and the catfish play on Blue Bayou All those fishing boats with their sails afloat If I could only see that familiar sunrise through sleepy eyes Redistricting efforts for political gain continues to be a divisive issue in Florida. Bill Dudley has this historical perspective on efforts to turn Florida from a reliable blue state to a predominantly red state. The senators, the congressmen, the governor, the cabinet were all Democrats. It was a one-party state, and if you wanted to run and get elected to political office, if you're a Republican, you better 
run under a democratic disguise. University of Florida historian David Colburn, his book From Yellow Dog Democrats to Red State Republicans, looks at the changing face of Florida politics beginning just before World War II. Florida in 1940 was an agricultural state. The heat, mosquitoes, lack of infrastructure, and rigid racial segregation discouraged immigration. Soon, war would expose the state to two million soldiers in training, as well as herald the invention of DDT and shortly after the first practical air conditioning. But Florida would remain solidly democratic, apportioned so that as late as 1960, a majority of its Senate and House seats were elected by less than 15% of the state's voters. And they saw the Democratic Party as the party of segregation, the party that would preserve Southern culture in Florida and the Southern values. On the other hand, they also believed in a lot of things that the Republican Party was espousing small government, low taxes, family values. In the early 1960s, the party emerged as a strong national force as Lyndon Johnson ushered in the Great Society, an era of big government with social programs for health, education, and most significantly, civil rights. The South begins to react to that, and it reacts negatively, particularly to the civil rights reforms that their party has now become a part of, the Democratic Party party that they had looked to to preserve their culture and their race relations. In 1966, Florida voters elected Claude Kirk, the first Republican governor since Reconstruction. But from the start, the Kirk administration seemed fraught with political missteps. Almost as a reaction, Floridians elected Reuben Askew in 1970 and 74, Bob Graham in 78, and Lawton Childs in 1990, all three promising to reform government, create new opportunities, and keep taxes low while protecting the environment. These three governors will play a critical role in keeping the Democratic Party in power and holding off the Republican tide that engulfs the rest of the South but does not engulf Florida during this period of time. Florida's demographics were changing radically in the late 1980s and early 90s, and among those embracing conservative politics were anti-Castro Cubans, fixed-income retirees looking for low taxes, and most significantly, a growing tide of Northerners seeking opportunity. As they settle in the Orlandos and the Tampas and the Fort Lauderdales, where the most common sight in the neighborhood is the moving van, moving people into and out of the neighborhood. These people are anxious to find some sense of community, and where do they find it? They find it at the church. These new Protestant fundamentalist churches emerge. These and other groups helped elect Jeb Bush in 1998. But Colburn feels the Republican tide had begun to turn some six years before that, when Florida's largely Democratic black politicians were persuaded to partner with Republicans to redistrict the state with profound results. In the 1994 election, following this reapportionment, the Republicans take control of the Senate And in 1996, they take control of the House of Representatives. And today, they have majorities in the House and Senate that are comparable to the majorities that the Democrats had in the 1960s. And I think what happens in Florida and what's taking place here suggests a good deal about what's happening in American politics generally. What's ahead for Florida? Colburn sees Republicans dominating state politics in the immediate future. 
in part because of better organization. Still, with the strong economy enjoyed by Jeb Bush, now a thing of the past, can a less powerful party retain control? What happens when the party begins to divide, as it already is beginning to divide, over the politics of dealing with the economy, of dealing with the environment, and what happens if the economy continues to stagnate as a result of the decline in real estate values. That will open up a real door of opportunity for the Democrats, particularly in statewide elections, and will they be organized enough to capitalize on the opportunities that are presented by the present political environment to see statewide office. Historian David Colburn. His book, From Yellow Dog Democrats to Red State Republicans, is published by University Press. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Don't miss your opportunity to follow the approximate route of Ponce de Leon and enjoy great presentations from scholars aboard the Carnival cruise ship Sensation. Visit myfloridahistory.org for details and to register while cabins are still available. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Fund, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.